0: Welcome to the Flannery Podcast. The issue this week, the Romans knew how to deal with insurrection, and it's an interesting comparison to how we do not know how to deal with it. Stay tuned. I think it's very interesting if we look at history and see what in history informs us today. Some have said, you know, it's not that history repeats itself, it rhymes. Well, that may be. But it's very interesting to take a look at something in history and how people dealt with, yes, an insurrection in 65 B.C. in Rome and made right decisions to deal with the insurrection as compared with today what we did with our January 6th insurrection. And the possible price we will pay for not being as dispositive as Cicero was as Consul dealing with the Catalinian conspiracy. Now, I've tried to figure out how to do this efficiently so that it's not just informative, but fun. And it is fun in a very disciplined sense because the history is just amazing. There is everything that you can imagine that happened in our time comparable to something that happened in that time over this conspiracy to take over Rome, to kill its leaders and to take over Rome. Now, I've dealt with a number of, number of sources and one is Anthony Everett, who i found over the years is, is a terrific uh, historian and he doesn't talk just about uh, this conspiracy, but he talks about Cicero and among other books he's written, that would be, if you, if you want to start and read this stuff, that would be a good place to go. <laughs> you could also read uh, Caesar. He doesn't say much about this in his Gallic campaigns. Gallic being basically France. And uh, <laughs> because of those books that we studied as students in high school and sometimes in college, uh, we've, we, uh, we're very fond of the Latin. So that's why it comes to me as a basis of comparison. Sadayana is the one who said those who don't study history are, are doomed to repeat it. Um, if we had studied history, uh, history in this case, maybe we would have been stronger, maybe not. The, the kinds of government are different and the same at the same time. Let's talk about the cast of characters. Cicero. Now, as a young man, and even now, I read his speeches and so forth. And uh, they're all in Latin. I don't read them in Latin. I read them in English. And most of the devices that he had have been studied. And he has one that I like in particular called praeturition. And an example of it is, uh, well, first, let me describe how it works. I pass over one thing to talk about something else. I pass over the fact that you have not been loyal to your wife. To deal with the fact that you've taken money from the public treasury. And you never mention uh, cheating on the wife again. (laughs) It's just a slander. And there were slanders against him as well. Uh, That was the nature of the time, and very similar to now. Now, keep in mind, uh, Caesar appears on the other side of this drama, defending the characters who were involved in the conspiracy sort of drawing a very careful line, not actually identifying with them, but protecting and defending them because every man's entitled to a defense. Catalina is the focus of this. He is the person who leads the conspiracy because he gets so frustrated when he can't become consul, can't be elected as consul in two uh, successive elections that he decides he can't do anything else and that's why he decides to overthrow the government. There are two phases of this. There is the first time he tries to run, and they think it's—they uh, think that's a conspiracy that he was going to kill members of the Senate and so forth if he didn't win. But whatever happened to stop it, some think because people knew about it, he didn't go forward with it. The second time he runs for the consul and he loses, that's when he decides there's nothing else he can do. And these people pay so much in bribe money that that's what they that's all that they can do there are two other characters in this that come up in the drama late in the game during the second conspiracy one is lentulus who is close to catalina and another person is fulvia and fulvia is uh, you might say a woman of the night of the night uh, now you can compare these people to our modern uh, insurrection Uh, Cicero, it's very hard to find anybody that could compare to Cicero, given how he conducted himself. But he would be the Schiff-like character at the first impeachment trial of Trump. Caesar, well, uh, however much you may favor him or think you do, uh, he would be more like uh, Sessions or Barr or Hawley or Cruz. Catalina, no one else but Trump, had to be, because of his insurrection, his seditious behavior. Lentulus would be a Trump crony, and Fulvia. Well, I don't know if she's like Storm Daniel, Stormy Daniels, but Fulvia is a woman who is sleeping with an associate of Catalina, and so passes on information to Cicero. So that's our cast of characters. Now you have to realize that they had a very uh, uh, powerful uh, set of rules that they followed and traditions and all sorts of mixed mixed symbolisms, and religion, and politics, and power, and uh, courses that one had to follow to succeed. Now, Cicero's uh, brother wrote a book called A Short Guide to Electioneering. And among the things that he said in the book was, people naturally prefer you to lie to them rather than refuse them your help. You must cultivate the aristocrats diligently, he was told. Now, what we have is, starting with Catalina, he was one of a line of able and rebellious young aristocrats during the declining years of the Roman Republic. He refused to settle down after early indiscretions and enter respectable politics as defenders of the status quo. But during this period of time, there were all sorts of problems. There was a failure of agriculture, there was a sudden block in trade, and tax revenues from the eastern provinces were held up. Mithridates was uh, attacking Rome. So that created a cash flow crisis for the state of Rome. And Catalina came out with a proposal to cancel debt debts. So in other words, what you owed, you didn't owe any longer. That was very popular. Another thing that he was pushing was, we can shift land around. State will buy it and will redistribute land. So these two things, land and and cancellation of debt, became his, quote, issues. Now, these policies had favor with the popularis movement, which step by step was dismantling earlier reforms and was set on weakening the Senate's hold on the levers of government. So it was a takeover. Now, you can characterize who's on first by looking at who is politically in contention with whomever. But in this case, you have the populares who want to seize power from those who've had it for so long. And they're doing it with these proposals that the wealthy, the aristocrats don't prefer. Because you save somebody from their debt, well then somebody else doesn't get paid. And those are the wealthy who don't get paid. Now, Catalina was about the same age as Cicero when this was going on. But uh, <laughs> we, we have uh, uh, questions about what these two guys did when they were younger. Um, it's clear that Catalina began to flirt with revolutionary illegality. And he found it advisable, therefore, to surround himself with bodyguards. And Cicero commented upon the fact that he had these young bodyguards by saying no one's ever had such a talent for seducing young men. And in those days there was a, a more relaxed view of uh, homosexuality and even preying upon the young. Now Catalina needed to create a coterie of supporters on the basis of the favors he provided. so. That's, that's, that's how he positioned himself, and he, he had gifts, or he wouldn't have been able to position himself. But it's like absolute power does corrupt, corrupt absolutely. Now, during the summer of 66, uh, two consul elects for 65 were disqualified for bribery. And what we have is it's said that Catalina colluded with the two disgraced men and a bankrupt young noble in a plot to assassinate the replacement consuls when they took up office in 65. Remember, we're counting backwards, 66 to 65. And as many senators as possible, and in the bargain to seize a consulship for himself. So from the summer of 66 into 65, Catalina was preparing his first conspiracy to take power by Uh, assassinating members of the Senate, killing as many as possible, and getting a consulship for himself by force. So now you see the comparison I would make between what's happened in 66 BC with what's happening in 2021 right here in Washington, DC. Catalina was beginning to flex his conspiratorial muscle. And this was the first Catalinian uh, conspiracy. Now, Gaius Julius Caesar. Uh, he he quietly supported Catalina's endeavors from the wings. Uh, Caesar erat imperator. Caesar was an emperor, but not yet. <laughs> he would become one, and he would face the same fate as we'll see happens to Catalina. It was not Catalina, who does not even receive a mention, who conceived the massacre of Rome's political establishment. But some say it was Crassus, a very wealthy senator, and Caesar, a young, on the make, powerful man from the House of Marius, who planned to become dictator, and his deputy the master of horse, respectfully. Now, the accus- accusations implicating Caesar can be traced to imaginative attacks by his opponents so there's some question whether caesar had any part in the first catalinian conspiracy but conspiracies to throw over a government often have people hiding for obvious reasons because when it fails it fails greatly caesar was moving to center stage at the same time catalina was planning this attack when he was 80 In 65, he borrowed himself almost into bankruptcy to create the most exciting and magnificent spectacles. Caesar put on shows, gladiatorial shows, that money could buy and which he dedicated to the memory of his dead father. All of this was his way of promoting himself. And it was at great risk because the only way he could pay off the debt he accumulated was succeeding in politics. Not that we've seen that present-day America. (laughs) Now, when he was uh, young, he was captured by pirates at one point who were all over the Mediterranean. And while he was waiting for his ransom to arrive, he got in friendly terms with his captors, and he told them that when he was released, he was going to come back and kill all of them. And they laughed, and they thought that was funny. But that is exactly what Caesar did. Now, Caesar pulled away from the impulsive Catalina because he saw that his path might lead to disaster. So he did not embrace the knife of insurrection. When the consulship approached the vote, Cicero had neither the means nor the will to buy victory. So the Senate, to his favor, tightened up the rules against corruption at the polls. Now, Cicero was uh, particularly uneasy about Catalina, and his other, only other rival was Antonius, a much more malleable character. So what he did with him was he convinced him that he could have the property that came with the position if he would step back and allow Cicero to win the consulship, which is about what happened. Of Catalina, Cicero asked, in the campaign, can any man be a friend of someone who has murdered so many citizens? You see how tight was his argument. How vicious was his argument. He talked about Catalina. He said, he has fouled himself in all manner of vice and crime. He has soaked in the blood of those he has impiously slaughtered. He has robbed the provincials. He has violated the laws and the courts. Who in our time could we say that of? Maybe not exactly that way, but if Catalina and Trump, over the intervening years, were switched, there would be a fair comparison between the two, in my opinion. So Cicero discovered what he thought was a new plot brewing, the one I've been discussing, that something sinister was afoot. before. The the consular election, which took place in June, Catalina called a meeting of friends and dissidents. A list of those present survives these many years by those who wrote about what was going on in that time. It includes the rejected consulate candidates of 65. So we have these people involved, it's believed in such a conspiracy for the first time that Catalina wants to run to be a consul. In less than 20 years, Cicero had risen from being a little known lawyer from the provinces to being the joint head of state of the greatest empire in the known world. Now, Cicero was bound in such a way for the rule of law. He stood for the rule of law and the maintenance of a constitution in which all social groups could play a part, but where the Senate took the lead according to ancestral tradition. So you see, that's why you could compare him to a Schiff, and there are other people, but there are few as good as Schiff in, in our comparison. And Schiff himself pales, as you'll see, by comparison with the actions, the true actions that Cicero took in his day. Now, Cicero didn't want the usual governorship that followed a consulship, and that's why he agreed to give up that rich province uh, in Macedonia, to pass it on to Antonius. And that meant that he would be the sole consul. So he, he had his eye on the ball. He was more interested in the power to himself, but legitimate. Not legitimate, but obtained by bribes, which were allowed, provided that you didn't actually see the money passing hands. Now, the populares threw down a challenge to the new regime. No sooner was it's the case that Cicero was the consul, that they proposed the first land reform bill in years. And it was, it was thought that Crassus and Caesar were behind the move, although it didn't make a lot of sense for Crassus, because uh, he would lose wealth in the bargain. So again, you see that they're willing to make a trade for power, as is true in America. And we, don't, we discount that aspect of what goes on. So Cicero had a kind of ticklish problem. He was indebted to the optimates, who were the wealthy, who were as hostile to the redistribution of state land as their fathers and grandfathers had been and shared their conservative instincts. So, so you see the lineup. I wouldn't want to try to divide this between Republican and Democrat. The overlay is too difficult. So colonies were to be established by selling public land in Italy and the provinces and by buying additionally privately owned land on a voluntary basis. Nevertheless, Cicero opposed the legislation in the Senate and at the General Assembly. So he opened his consulship on a negative basis because uh, there were a lot of people who wanted free land, a lot of people who wanted debt forgiven too. So in the time of what we'll describe as the second conspiracy, Support for Catalina was more broadly based than at the time of his first conspiracy. Many senators who had spent or gambled away their wealth saw nothing to be lost and much to be gained by joining them. A general cancellation of debts? Wow. The central plank of his policy? That would solve all their problems. It's better than a chicken in every pot. Unsurprisingly, this was a program unlikely to appeal to the property classes, and indeed to the middling sort of people, you know, shopkeepers and small traders. The revolutionary leader was under growing pressure from his supporters in Rome and from the discontented sullen veterans, S-U-L-L-A, Sulla, the leader, in the countryside to seize power by fair means or foul. So there was an atmosphere of desperation. There was an opportunity to do something. There was a campaign promise that seemed to catch on, that was irresponsible, that would hurt so many people in so many different ways. But there was a hunger for change, and there was a hunger to take care of one's person without regard to the state of Rome. Catalina believed that he was the target when they limited the contributions that could be made, or I should say the bribes that could be made, And, and they were going to prosecute and punish people who violated that law. So he decided, when he believed that he was the target to be excluded in the second election, that was the end of it for him. He decided to have Cicero and other leading figures assassinated. The plan was to attack them on the day in July when elections for next year's office holders were to be held. Now. Cicero learned about this from his informant. His informant was Fulvia, a mistress of Catalino's fellow plotter. So he had access to intelligence, what was going on in Catalina's camp, from a mistress of one of Catalina's cronies. Perfect, right? Now, Cicero was so sufficiently alarmed, now get this, he gives the intelligence to the Senate to postpone the forthcoming elections. Now, this is sort of like what comes out of Norfolk (laughs) that tells us that you are about to be attacked. And somehow or other, it never ends up in the hands of anyone who can use it in our January 6th insurrection in the present day. But listen to what happens to Cicero. He's alarmed. He goes to the Senate. He tells them about this. He questioned Catalina publicly in the Senate about his intentions. Catalina responded with with a hell of a, a metaphor. Listen to what he said. I see two bodies, one thin and wasted but with a head, the other headless but big and strong. What is so dreadful if I myself become the head of the body which needs one? Wow, talk about arrogant. The first body was obviously the Senate, and the second the people that he would head. The remark was a bold and threatening claim to the leadership of the masses. Now, here's the thing. Despite having this information, and it was reliable, and he couldn't say where he got it, just that it was reliable, the Senate was not convinced of Catalina's seriousness and took no action. Now, that sounds like our modern government. Now, many optimates, they, they weren't sure how much they could trust Cicero. They felt he was getting above himself by creating an atmosphere of crisis on the basis of very few facts. This left Cicero in a distinctly awkward position. Now Catalina was now alerted to his investigations and given his personality might well be provoked into a violent response. Cicero got himself a bodyguard and was careful to let people see that he started wearing a breastplate under his toga. So you see how it's developing. So doing one thing has, an, has an, infect, uh, an effect on other things that may happen. I don't know if you're familiar with the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. The physics are that if you look at a subatomic um, bodies, you see that if you want to measure their momentum and you want to measure their location, uh, you alter what you're looking at by introducing the e- energy to measure it. So, when si- now the, the parallel, you know, and commonplace is so if you introduce information that you have, intelligence, that there's about to be an assassination, you affect what people are going to do, having disclosed that you know about it. And in this case, the Senate didn't act, and that put Cicero in a more precarious position. In other words, you see how doing the right thing can require courage because if it doesn't go right, you're exposed yourself, as Cicero was. So Cicero uh, wondered if what was going to happen, but Catiline failed for a second time to secure the consulship, and he didn't go forward uh, with the second conspiracy. And so what was going to happen now? He was enraged by these anti-bribery laws against himself. He had suffered this electoral defeat, and so he abandoned legality. Now, you could say he's already done that on several levels, but apparently his commitment was so great when having spent what he did, having lost the funds that he had, having lost the position he had, having been attacked and been compromised, he saw as his right and to take revenge on everyone who prevented him from obtaining it. And that included Cicero and most of the Senate. So he set his mind on a coup d'etat. Now, we had an election last November. And he whose name I prefer not to mention lost soundly. And so legality hadn't worked for him. He's never attempted to have it work for him. And so on January the 6th, with all sorts of events leading up to it, we had an insurrection, we had sedition. But let's return now back to Rome. What did Catalina do? Catalina then insisted on those who were with him on a monstrous oath of loyalty. And if you're looking for crazy fringe QAnon kind of activity back in <laughs> very old Rome, his oath of loyalty which he had even his, uh, his friend, the consul Antonius, swear. He, he had this special oath, and Plutarch, no less than Plutarch, describes this oath. He sacrificed a boy, and after administering, administering the oath over his entrails, ate them in company with others. Now, to us today, this cannibalism sounds far-fetched. It could be an example of black propaganda, because considering the time between now and then. But there was a half-submerged tradition of occasional human sacrifice back then. So it might be true. But there isn't any question that he was putting together his cabal to attack Rome. Cicero was clearly receiving good intelligence, and he looked forward to assembling enough evidence to be able to take action against Catalina. And it came. At about midnight on October the 20th, Cicero received an unannounced visit from Crassus, remember he's the, the wealthy uh, adjunct to Caesar, and two leading senators. Crassus's doorkeeper had taken delivery of some letters for various senior Romans. Crassus read the one addressed to him, which was unsigned. It claimed that Catalina was organizing a massacre and warned him to slip away from the city as soon as possible. Now Cicero didn't accept it hook line and sinker—a sinker, sinker rather—because it occurred to him that Crassus, rattled by Catalina's behavior, uh, might want to avoid being implicated in some wild adventure Catalina was undergoing, and had himself arranged for the mysterious letters to be written and delivered. But Cicero also saw it as now he had evidence, and he had a prominent senator. And so uh, this seemed to contain information about a plot. And then there was a report on the formation of bands of soldiers outside of Rome in a location called Etruria. So the senators had no choice now but to give him, that is, Cicero, through the final act, the authority he'd been asking for. Now, seeing that a prosecution was being threatened, Catalina offered to surrender himself into custody, cheekily suggesting he could be kept under arrest at Cicero's house. Now, this is not as strange as you think, because the houses then were mostly public, except when, when Cicero or someone else thought they might be assassinated. And, uh, and there were also... Uh, public stores sometimes in these houses, and people lived on the second floor, and there were a whole variety of religious ceremonies that played into how one dealt with these places. On the night of November the 6th, Catalina somehow managed to leave Medellus' house where he stayed and attended an important planning meeting with the other conspirators. Now remember, Cicero has an informant. It's the indispensable fulvia And she was briefed by her lover, who's an associate of Catalina, uh, and that this meeting occurred, and to tell Cicero later in the evening what had been discussed. So they summon Catalina to the Senate, not to the Senate, to another location, and uh, they question him. And the consul, Cicero, addressed Catalina directly. Now keep in mind, Cicero by this time was such an accomplished lawyer and such an accomplished speaker that this would be like the worst possible cross-examination that a guilty man could face given the prowess of the questioner. This is what he said. Uh, Cicero said, I'm able to report how on November the 6th you came into the Maker Street I will be perfectly specific, and entered the house of Marcus Leca, and many of your accomplices in this lunatic, criminal enterprise join you there. Do you dare to deny it? You parceled out the regions of Italy. You decided where you wanted each of your agents to go. You divided up the city for the benefit of the incendiaries. You confirmed that you yourself would be leaving, and added that the only thing that held you back for a little was the fact that I, Cicero, was still alive. Cicero reported that two of those at the meeting had agreed to go to his house in the early hours, somehow gain entry, and murder him in his bed. Catalina reacted fiercely to the speech, calling Cicero an immigrant. (laughs) That's so perfectly a parallel with Trump that it's hard to imagine that I didn't make that up, but I didn't make that up. That's the report across all these years that the, the thing to say against Cicero by Catalina was, you're an immigrant, and refusing to go into voluntary exile without a trial. And that is a problem because they, they were very serious about these rules, but they, this is an emergency. There's gonna be, there, there is a known agreement to kill people in the Senate and take over the government. Cicero asked the senators if they wished to banish Catalina. Embarrassed by Catalina's presence, the majority said nothing. Does that sound like our Senate today, our Congress? Cleverly retrieving the situation, Cicero then asked if they would order him to banish Quintus, Lutatius, Catalyst, one of the House's most respected members. They roared back no. Now, this allowed the consul, Cicero, to claim that by its silence, the Senate had in fact consigned the revolutionary to exile. Now, Catalina, well, you could say he was no dummy, but he sure did a lot of really stupid things politically. Um, he slipped out of the city that night, accompanied by 400 armed men, and made his way north to the troops of Manlius, who was on his side. And before he left, he wrote a letter to the elder state, statesman, Catalus and is purported to be genuine and it reveals a man self-centered who had nothing left to hope for he was desperate and again uh, i'll read this to you but think about he whose name we prefer to to forget and what he trump was thinking when he did his unconstitutional unlawful seditious acts but this is Catalina Catalina wrote I do not intend to make any formal defense of my new policy I will however explain my point of view what I am going to say implies no consciousness of guilt and on my word of honor you can accept it as the truth I was provoked by wrongs and insults and robbed of the fruits of my painstaking industry and I found myself unable to maintain a position of dignity, so I openly undertook the championship of the oppressed, as I had often done before. I saw unworthy men promoted to honorable honorable positions and felt myself treated as an outcast on account of unjust suspicions. That's why I've adopted a course of action, amply justified in my present circumstances, which offers a hope of saving what is left of my honor. I intended to write at greater length, but news has come that they are preparing to use force against me. So for the present, I commend Orestia, his wife, to you and trust her to your protection. Shield her from wrong. I beg in the name of your own children. Farewell. He was claiming the office of which he believed he had been robbed. <laughs> He'd been robbed of an election. Catalina assumed a consul's rods and axes. He also took with him a silver eagle, a military standard that had belonged to Marius and which he kept in a shrine at his house. As soon as the news of his departure, defection, he and Manlius, remember the man who had the troops outside the city, were declared public enemies. In Rome, The management of the conspiracy devolved to the middle-aged Lentilist. So Lentilist is an aid to Catalina. It is strange that he and his colleagues didn't abandon their plans. Perhaps they felt they were on a vehicle careening out of control and that it was marginally safer to stay on board than jump off. Lentulus had a contemptuous attitude toward the proprieties of public life. He was a superstitious man, they say, and was apparently encouraged by some forged prophecies, predicting predicting that he would achieve absolute power, from which it may be inferred, possibly, that he was not averse to (laughs) supplanting Catalina. He decided, Lentulus did, on a wholesale massacre of the Senate and timed it for one of the nights of the Saturnalia in mid-December. About 400 men carrying concealed swords were detailed to kill senators individually in their homes. The plan had a frivolous kind of ingenuity, but remember (laughs) that Cicero has a source, Fulvia, and she passed on the details to Cicero. It became time to deal with Lentulus. With almost incredible stupidity, the conspirators played into Caesar's hands. And you know, judging from January 6, for all the planning and negotiation and quote coordination and cooperation to uh, hang the vice president of the United States and to kidnap the Speaker of the House and to kill the law enforcement officers, still. Luckily, they didn't succeed. And in this case, in Rome, they didn't succeed either. Uh, a delegation from the Alabroges, a Gallic tribe with grievance, was in Rome. Now, Cicero, when he wrote of his campaign, not Cicero, excuse me, when Caesar wrote of his campaigns, he wrote of his campaigns through Gaul. And... Uh, He wrote in Latin, which we had to study in high school and later, omnis gallus and tres parta divisa est. All Gaul is divided into three parts. And so Caesar would go through those three parts uh, in his military career after this. Lentulus thought it would be a good idea to let these Allobroges into the conspiracy and encourage them to stir up a revolt in Gaul. Now, the Allobroges were uncertain how to react, and they consulted someone in Rome, and that person in Rome brought them at once to Cicero. Bad move. Bad move for Catalina. And Cicero suggested that they negotiate with the conspirators. And he devised an elaborate sting operation. And how did it work? The Allobroges were asked to obtain documentary proof of the conspiracy by persuading the conspirators to write letters to the tribe's Senate. They did so. Now, Catalina was going to commit one of the most heinous offenses in the Roman catalog. They also found this out, the freeing of slaves to take up arms against the Republic. Now, when the Alabrigis left Rome on the night of December 2nd, they ran into an ambush. Cicero had laid this ambush ambush at the Milvian Bridge, and they seized the letters. They had all the evidence that could be desired. The original intelligence was true, the successive intelligence was true, and now they had it in writing. So the persuasive ability at this point was tremendous. Here in America, we had two impeachment trials, and still people didn't get it. They still haven't acted upon that information, upon those crimes. There's been no reckoning. There's been no accounting. So, most of the day was then taken up hearing this evidence. The person who uh, could testify was given immunity. Four senators took down verbatim notes at the consul's request. And... They found that one of the houses of the conspirators was found to be stacked with weapons, spears, armor, and a large number of knives and swords. That's the kind of corroboration that you like. Lentulus, as a senior magistrate, underwent well, some sort of cross-examination. He resigned his office as praetor. He took off his purple-bordered toga on the floor of the Senate and put on other clothes, more in keeping with his <clears throat> new situation. This was a cut-and-dried case. The leading conspirators were handed over to the praetors to keep them under arrest, although not in chains. And there was a scare when slaves and freedmen of Lentulus came around by back streets to the praetors' houses and tried unsuccessfully to rescue them. Cicero left the debate briefly to station guards in appropriate places in the cities. So what should they do with the prisoners? What do you think our Senate would do? What do you think our government would do now? What are they doing now? In principle, as Roman senators, they should receive, uh, as Roman citizens, each of these people should receive a trial. But that would entail a dangerous delay. While well, Catalina was in the field. Remember, he's north of the city with uh, troops. The alternative was to execute the men without delay. Now, this was legally and politically problematic. Cicero was well aware that Caesar could organize a backlash if citizens were killed without a proper hearing. While a consul had power over life and death when in office, he could be called to account in the courts after the end of his term. Now Think about that. What does that sound like? Our Department of Justice said, you can't prosecute a president while he's in office. I disagree that the Constitution says that, but that is what the Department of Justice has said. That's been contradicted by two special counsel, one involving Watergate and then another uh, during the, the, the Mueller investigation. So, but back then, a consul had power over life and death when in office, but he could be called into the courts at the end of his term. So that's on Cicero's mind. It could, of course, be argued that conspirators had abrogated their citizenship by taking up arms against the state. This would be self-evidently the case with Catalina, who was at the head of a hostile army outside the city. But as for Lentulus and others, the position was less clear-cut. We have all this evidence, but is it enough? Cicero decided to cover his back by asking the Senate, which met again two days later, for its opinion. What is your opinion? And one senator argued for the extreme penalty, that meant death. But then uh, praetors were elect were invited to speak, and Caesar stood up to address the meeting. And Caesar spoke with great severity. No form of punishment could be too harsh for the crime, he said, but the death penalty was a mistake. So the Senate then sunk away from death. So Caesar's speech was both courageous, and clever. But there was one member of the Senate whose speech has made it down all, the, all through time to today, Marcus Porcius Cato. He was in his early 30s, and he took the floor. He was a ferocious opponent of the Populares and of anyone who breached the Constitution. He had rigid views of right and wrong, and he had no sense of humor. Cicero admired him but found him (laughs) difficult to handle mainly because he had no aptitude whatsoever for compromise we could use a few of those people right now once he was on his feet he could speak for hours and was an indomitable filibuster there's the word on this occasion he was blunt caesar was trying to subvert the state He said he wanted to frighten the Senate about a situation from which he had a good deal to fear himself. Why was the Senate hesitating? The conspirators had confessed to planning massacres and arson. If we could afford to risk the consequences of making a mistake, I would be quite willing to let experience convince you of your folly since you scorn advice, but we are completely encircled. Catalina and his army are ready to grip us by the throat and there are other foes within the walls and the very heart of our city. The enemy within, we have an enemy within now. We have them in the Republican party. We seem to have them in our intelligence network. We seem to have them in the armed forces. We have militias across the country and we have some character telling us we're gonna change who's in the White House in August. So what else did Cato say? Having admitted their criminal intention, they should be put to death as if they had been caught in the actual commission of capital offenses in accordance with ancient custom. The Senate was impressed. They shifted their position again. They endorsed Cato's motion for the death penalty. Caesar lost his temper. He was so out of control that the senators turned against him, and it appeared that his life was at risk. They threatened to kill him unless he desisted. Some friends huddled around him and protected him with their arms and togas. The guards looked at Cicero, who shook his head. He shook his head no. He was not going to have Caesar killed in the Senate over this. Daunted, Caesar left the meeting, and, because he's a lot smarter than these other guys, didn't attend the Senate for the rest of the year. Leaving the Senate in session, Cicero, surrounded by leading senators, went to collect the prisoners one by one from the praetors' houses. Prisoners were thrown into the dungeon, originally built as a cistern, which was entered through a hole in the roof and usually left to starve or to await the executioners. Lentulus, first up, was lowered inside and strangled with a noose. The Praetors went to collect the other four prisoners and they too were led down to the dungeon and executed in turn. When the deed was done and all the conspirators had been killed, the consul walked into the forum and shouted in a loud voice, they have lived, avoiding a direct and unlucky mention of death. So what about Catalina? First of all, the Senate conferred on Cicero the title father of his country. And when Cato repeated that compliment by that body outside, doubtless at the top of his voice, everyone applauded. It was the proudest moment in the life of Marcus Tullius Cicero. As for Catalina, the dreadful news from Rome soon reached his troops and they began to melt away. The fighting continued. It was an easy but bloody victory. Catalina fell, fighting hand-to-hand to to the last. Catalina was dead. So that's the history of the Catalonian conspiracy, abbreviated um, with whatever flaws I bring to it, but I've tried to hem in my remarks with some careful reading, and... uh, I think what we learn from it is that there are better ways to approach an attack on a democracy, a republic, than we have taken so far. And there is a great risk to presume that when things seem regular, they are. And we can hardly even rely on this because mostly we, we see the signs every day that things are not regular that the vote is under siege and we're going to have a massive investigation, we hope, by the Department of Justice. And an election was held and we're on notice that something. it doesn't matter what happens in an election, the vote doesn't matter. This is a precarious position for democracy. And I suppose the third and critical element of this discussion is on January the 6th, by violence and force, incited by riot, by the so-called President of the United States, they would have taken over the government and put this dictator, Trump, instead in office, despite the vote, despite the election. And they were prepared to do violence to the Vice President and the Speaker of the House, the line of succession. If that's not enough to alarm you, and the intelligence we have is not enough to alarm you, then our democracy is in a very precarious position. I want to thank you for listening. Uh, I hope that I explained it clearly enough so that you could at least enjoy it if you didn't see some of the uh, associations that I see between this historical period and our own. But do remember that Rome lost its democracy after this And ours is under siege now after a much shorter period of time for our young republic. So have a good time. Uh, I'll uh, talk to you again next Sunday. Bye-bye.